she was alone. They were renegades. She became the target of their savage hunt. She was fair game. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. Are you taking the piss? Yeah. I'm gonna fuck you up. Oh, man. I'm gonna fucking kill you. He's a funny guy. He's a funny guy. But he's great. You know, he looks like a guy who wakes up in the morning. He brings him down. There's a bucket full of drugs. Right. He pops right <laughs> And he's chewing it while he's walking to the bathroom. Bringing the noise. Since 07. Yeah. The BK wait all day with these two DJ and Ferguson here to teach you Death traps on a sure way to kill And Eva and Raquel not now, never will The boys don't play, bring on all flicks If you ain't coming with it, they will tell you that it's ish Great, great men, you will get applause And when we say Christabel, everybody please pause Clive Barker, the musicals The man with the S to the Disney unusual Duck and cover when time's on the rant Or please sing along cause you know that they can't <laughs> So this one goes out to you and yours And all the great members of the message boards They call me B-Hyphen and it's time to start Cause we all feel better, better in the dark yeah, yeah. Black Samson can't be bought I want these streets clean, real clean I want you to go home and tell your clients this neighborhood ain't for sale Can't do that! You can't do that? Huh? Janet! I've come to see Brad. Oh, uh, that's a question. He's sleeping like a baby. If you were concerned about Janet. Yes, Janet. How are you? I'm happy. Well, I'm happy. Nobody ever lends money to a man with a sense of humor. And until we get back in touch with you. Go watch that movie. Right, Devin? Go watch that movie. <laughs> Here we come, better in the dark, rating their movie collection, for stuff that's cool, boom, 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 hey, hey, it's obscurity, movies you never heard of, listen to Tom and Derek, tell you about these gems, crazy dad, <laughs> crazy cool. <laughs> Crazy cool. Somewhere, James Dye is going, Yes, they're going to talk about that movie! Oh, Lord. <laughs> As you can tell, this is not only Better in the Dark, but it is something that has become a staple of... A the yearly news, ritual. And that people seem to enjoy a lot. Obscure movies. Mm-hmm. Every year. 2.0. We've done one every year, so this is going to be the fourth one. Yeah, but this is 2.0 because we tried doing this last time. And it oh, okay, work. yes, this is 2.0. Yeah. And I do want to say thank you. Mike Fisher was kind enough to send us some information on another audio editor, which we will be checking out. We're still using Audacity, so we got both fingers crossed. But before we go further, this is Derek Ferguson. And this is Thomas DJ. And this is, of course, the show you love, Better, Better in, in the, the Dark. Dark. Yes, this is our Obscure Movies show, and we've got a nice... We know this because we did this episode we once we already. Because we did it once already. Got a really cool sextet of films for you to check out, spanning from the 60s to the 80s. We're going real old school this time. Yeah. But before we get into the goodness, we have a single piece of viewer mail about that episode. Oh, which episode was that, Tom? You know which episode I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, but I like to hear you say it. 
I can never remember those really long titles that I give the review episodes. Yeah, huh? But that episode where we got busy and took a lot of people to task. Yeah, you guys know which one we're talking about. This is from Jonathan McFarland. I think this is his first time writing in. Thank you, Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to Don't the Don't make party. it your last time. Yes, please. Hello, guys. Love the show. I've been listening since you were recommended by the Dearly Departed Amazing Spider-Cast. Hey, Chris. I don't normally care enough about people hating on things to go to the trouble to write them, but your rants about comic book fandom, the CGS guys, and especially Jeff Johns, managed to pierce my veil of apathy. First of all, I am a nerd. I have my own comic book podcast, which I'm not going to pimp because that's not the point of this email. Before I continue, Jonathan, send us another email to give us the information about your podcast. Absolutely. We are always about getting people exposed to new podcasts. Absolutely. So please, we are extending our hand here. Give us some info, Send man. us that information and let us know where people can find you. Okay, getting back to Jonathan. And I have a form over on the Comic Geek Speak boards. That being said, the things you were complaining about with the show and nerd culture are not demic of the majority of comic book fans. When it comes to shows like CGS and their listeners, which I am not one of, even I have my limits, <laughs> of nerdly douchebaggery that I can tolerate. Good man, good man. You're dealing with the rare but very loud and obnoxious species, Nerdimus Maximus. Everything has to be the way it was when they first started reading. Their favorite characters have to be left alone. Harrison Ford must always be Han Solo, and the like. And yes, they can be assholes and often are, but don't paint us all with the same brush. I was just as disappointed as everyone else that Alan Cummings didn't return for X3. Unlike most, I didn't hate X3. It wasn't as good as X2, but I found it more enjoyable than X1. Probably because I didn't much care for Cyclops, and X3 was basically the Wolverine show. Weren't they all the Wolverine show? <laughs> Having read that last paragraph, I realized I didn't make much of a point in it, so feel free to ignore it. Not at all, Jonathan. I think he made some good points. Yeah, no, that. he did. One of the things I would counter with, though, is that, unfortunately, you're right. These little, as we called them in episode 76, fat, happy babies, are the minority. Derek and I would just talk about the fact that I've been getting together once a week with a group of geek culture fans, mm-hmm. spanning from anime fans to comic fans, for an extended Kype session. And we just have a lot of fun and just talk and just relax. That's right. The majority of geek culture is good people. And just to provide an example, mm-hmm. okay, I used to work for the Board of Education, mm-hmm. right? You have a school full of students, right? Yeah. 90% of the students, we never had any problem with. Right. They came, they went to their class, they did what they were supposed to do. But it was always that 10% right. that was always fucking up, mm-hmm. that was always getting into fights, or cutting class, or right. smoking pot. And I think that any subculture that you have, it's the same thing. 90% of that subculture yeah. are great people, they're wonderful people. Yeah. It's just that 10% that's going to make the 90% look bad. Yeah, and also keep in mind, Jonathan, that I count amongst my dearest, closest friends... People like Mike Bailey and Scott Gardner, who are as geeky as you will ever see. And I'm not ashamed to proclaim myself a geek myself. Right. However, here's what I think is the situation, one of the reasons why we got so heated on episode 76, which is that that small group of crying, mewling infants is the group that the man on the street thinks of when they think of geek culture. Bingo. Because they're the loudest and most vocal. Those are the ones that the average person will think of. I do feel, and I still feel very strongly, that because we're in a position of power right now, because geek culture is the dominant culture in our society, as you can see by our entertainment, we have an obligation to be discriminatory and an obligation to stand up for quality and to try to present a decent face. Put our best foot forward. 
because how we behave ourselves now that we're in the spotlight will dictate how we're going to behave ourselves when that spotlight gets passed on to somebody else. If what people remember when geek culture goes down that downward hill, and it will, is people crying about put on the damn fucking costumes and being loud and obnoxious only Harrison Ford could be Han Solo, only Harrison Ford could be Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones, wah, 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 Alan Cummings should come back to all that stuff. We're going back to those dark ages of the 60s and 70s, and here Scott Gardner has a chill over his shoulder, as I mentioned this, where the only thing people remember is the Batman TV show, and every article about comic books starts with Biff, Pam, Wow. What I don't understand mm-hmm. is why these people can't apply that same passion to their own lives. Right, I don't these know. are the people that cry about things don't work out for them, they can't get a break, they right. can't do it. Well, maybe if you took that same energy and passion that you have worrying about who's going to play mm-hmm. Thor right. in a movie five years down the road and apply it to what you're doing today, you will be a little bit further along in your life. That's just me, and anybody got a problem with that? Yeah, well, you and, know and Jonathan, where to find this is it. in no way invalidating what you no, just No, absolutely not. I mean, absolutely we think not. that you have a lot of great valid points here. Let's continue on. Let's go. Okay, now regarding the Smallville episode and Jeff Johns. Jeff Johns is one of the best comic book writers working today, precisely because he loves his characters. I don't have time for the JSA personally, but his Green Lantern work is what got me into Green Lantern, a character I'd never cared about before. Historically, I'm a Marvel guy, but my favorite character has always been Batman. He can't write for television worth shit. Amen, brother! Breach has demonstrated by the Absolute Justice episode, but when a creator loves the character they're writing, it improves the story, in my opinion. For instance, look at Garth Ennis' run on Punisher or Paul Dini's run on Detective Comics. Their love for their character shows through in the way they understand the character. I don't care whether you personally like his writing or not, but I do find it strange and off-putting how much you seem to actively hate the man. If you don't like what he's doing, just read something else and ignore it. That's how I tolerate Superman's existence. The beauty of comic books is that sooner or later the creative team will change. When I brought this letter to you, Derek, yeah, I said this gives us an excuse to explain a little further about the statement that we use quite a lot in Better in the Dark, which is you can love your characters, but you, you can't, can't love your characters. characters. Jonathan, you give us some great examples of writers who love their characters, like Garth Ennis with Punisher. Garth Ennis loves Punisher. But he still works within the confines of the fictional universe. He, I don't think Garth Ennis has ever retroactively changed anything no, to suit so his either. own end. No, I don't think so either. One of the reasons I really have a problem with Jeff John's depiction of Green Lantern, and I'm telling you this as someone who counts Green Lantern as one of his favorite characters, he has actively changed and rearranged the continuity of the character to get the character he wants to write about, not the character that was already there. Mm-hmm. You were following the cavalcade. You saw the stories with Carol Ferris's father, the big, burly man who was going off on an adventure to travel around the world because he felt he deserved it after building up his business. Right. That didn't work for Jeff Johns. No, it didn't work for So him. he just ripped it up, threw it out, and said, okay, now he's a sickly old man who is haunted by the fact that he caused Hal's father's death. But, however, is that really Jeff Johns' fault, or is that the fault of the editorial staff at DC, and Marvel right. as well, who do not make these writers toe the line and say, listen, this is what happened, this is the continuity. Okay, we'll let you change this, but you can't change that. It's weird because in a DC Nation column, Dan DiDio pretty much let it tip, something that we've always suspected. Who, and I'm saying it right here for anybody, if you don't like it, I'm sorry, I'm not going to read another DC comic until that man leaves. It's because be a long time, man. Well, then that's more money I can keep in my pocket. I don't want to read about bloodbath of murder yeah. and rape. Danny Dio, just to give you a bit of a background, he was a soap opera producer. 
He came from a television background. I can believe it. He was hired by Paul Levitz during that time when getting television people and movie people was all the rage in comics. Exactly. Every time I see an interview with him, I realize how totally clueless he is. But that's not here or there. But he tipped in a DC Nation column that his first order of business was he wanted to bring back Hal Jordan and he wanted to bring back Barry Allen. Right. Some people have said on the Earth2.net board, which is at www.earth2.net.com, that they don't understand why I take Jeff Johns for Green Lantern when I don't take him to task for Barry Allen. That's because I'm pretty sure Barry Allen is a Dan Dio dictator. It's like Dan Dio said, I want this to happen. And mm-hmm. Jeff Johns is his own personal genie. I think the thing is that Johns loves an idealized version of Hal Jordan. Okay. He doesn't love the Hal Jordan that we've had since 1961. He has a Mary Sue version. All right. Should we explain what a Mary Sue is? Briefly, I think okay. most people do, but what the hell? Derek and I both had a background in fan fiction, and there is a phrase called the Mary Sue. That is a character that is so perfect in every possible way. Every other character loves that character and fawns over it, and they can do no wrong. And it's a character that's basically the writer in fictionalized right. form most of the time. Or what the writer's means. ideal girlfriend slash boyfriend. Yeah, or boyfriend, right, exactly. Jeff John has gone from loving Hal Jordan, which is okay, to loving Hal Jordan in that he's turned Hal Jordan into his own personal Mary Sue. And this is something he's done in the past, because he did the same thing with the Star Spangled Kid slash Stargirl. And furthermore, whenever somebody would criticize him on how impossible this character was, would hide behind the fact that, well, I based her on my dead sister, so you must not like my dead Which I do kind of have a problem with, because when you put it out there like that, to me, it's kind of like you're saying, you just said it. Yeah. Well, if you don't like this character, then you don't like my dead sister. Right. Is my dead sister guy? You're insensitive. First of all, I don't agree with people coming out and saying that they base fictional characters on real people anyway. Well, to be fair, I mean, I've been very clear about certain characters being based on real people as well. But they're not people you know personally. They're not dead relatives of you. They're actors or something like that. Which I've done myself. Certain characters I see Mm -hmm. actors in my head. But I also think... That he makes another good point in there that, yeah, okay, we get that you don't like Jeff Johns, but it almost seems like sometimes it's a personal thing with you, with the way that you talk about the man. I think that that comes with something that you and I discussed on Tuesday, which is that right. part of it was because we had a lot of people writing in and saying, oh, I love it when Tom goes nuts. Goes nuts so cuckoo. But that's not the person I want to be. Right. And I think that, quite frankly, when I was listening back to 76 on Friday night, Mm-hmm. before sending it off to Mike Sims, it was something I was not very proud of, which is why we're going to try to, I think that the phrase you used was, pick and choose our rants a bit more carefully. That's what I say. Because I think sometimes, like in this case, the message gets blurred. It gets by blurred the delivery by system. the delivery, exactly. So They're not listening to the message, they're listening to the messenger. Yeah, they're listening to me ranting and raving, and they're not listening to And they're not the, getting what you're saying. I yeah. mean, there is a lot of flaws Jeff Johns has as a writer. The fact that he likes to go for the easy shock. You go back to every character Jeff Johns has retrofitted, it's all about, he finds some shocking thing to do to that character in the mm-hmm. past. The worst example, of course, is what he did with Barry Allen, where all of a sudden his mother, who had been alive throughout his entire career, mm-hmm. suddenly is murdered when he was a little kid. I don't understand the fascination that DC writers now have with murder. Oh, it's like they're obsessed with... Remind you know, me to lend you... In fact, if we're going to be driving home today, mm-hmm. I will grab the Crisis on Two Earths DVD. Oh, First yeah. off, because... 
the movie, and especially the short. I want to see the Spectre. Oh, the Spectre short is, oh, it's the coolest thing ever. Oh, well then I'm driving your ass home then. It is. <laughs> so I get it. Steve Niles wrote it. Gary Cole plays Jim Corrigan in the Spectre. Okay. It's done in the style of a 1940s hardball detective. That's what movie, I heard. Yeah, and it's shot in such a way that it looks like a 70s grindhouse film. Okay, let me see. I mean, I was planning on getting it anyway because oh, yeah. I got a Walmart gift card. Yeah, as a present. Oh, it, so and, I said I'm getting Christ. Yeah, and worse. to be fair, yeah, the main feature is also really, really good. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to lend this to you because I got the two disc set because I always like getting these supplementary right. material. And there is an half-hour-long documentary called DCU: The New World, in which they talk. About about how this new, darker DC universe, starting from Identity Crisis to today, developed. And you never get a sense of how totally clueless Dan DiDio is. Because he talks about, I got hired just before 9-11, so I'm coming into my new job in New York, and there are cops with machine guns, and people are kind of scared of them. I said, well, how would it be if people were scared of Superman like that? And I knew just at that moment, it's like, yeah. no, that's... yeah." They spent all this time congratulating themselves on how adult... And sophisticated, they've made comic books. Yeah, but they're not fun. Don't get me wrong, people. I have nothing against adult. I have nothing against sophisticated. I have nothing against yeah. some of that stuff. But no, some every character doesn't have to be that way. Many, 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 many episodes ago, I made reference to the idea of the wabi, right? Which is the intentional flaw Japanese artists put in their painting to throw the beauty, the larger picture, in sharper relief. Okay, you can't have absolute darkness without pinpoints of light exactly. to contrast it. Exactly. What Dan DiDio has done, and I find it hilarious that the thing that Michael Bailey likes to talk about, mm-hmm. when he met Jimmy Palmiotti, who is a great guy, I think Jimmy Palmiotti would make a great editor-in-chief. I think so, too. He does the Power Girl book. Right. I have not been following the monthly, but I did put the trade on my DCBS form because I keep hearing how great this book is. It's a lighthearted book. And how can you not be a lighthearted when you're using a character whose primary defining characteristic is she has big boobs? She's got big boobs. Exactly. What more do you need? Right. <laughs> Dan Dio has said to him, Oh, Jimmy, Jimmy. Hey, it's Dan Dio. How you doing? You gotta make that book darker. You see what I mean? After what they did to Mary Marvel. My oh, beloved Mary God. Marvel. Oh, I love Mary Marvel. Turned her Marvel. into an upskirt model. Yeah, what they did to her... I, I was just... I was it is a, is a crime. Has they went through that storyline... I gave up on counting, because I really like 52. Yeah. Oh, 52 was good. 52 yeah. was yeah. a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, 52 was good. Yeah. And yes, there was I a lot of 52. dark, but there was also a lot of humor in it. Exactly. By the way, Didio hates 52. Well, of course he does. And he calls the ludicrously titled... Nobody's getting raped and murdered. I love this title for this one. The DC Countdown to Infinite Crisis. What the hell is that supposed to be? But why, when they put this thing together, didn't nobody say to Dan, don't you find it kind of ludicrous? turning one of the sweetest, kindest characters in the DC Universe into an upskirt model. Into a hoochie. <laughs> anyway, we're getting far afield, and we do want to kind of focus. Let's get back to Jonathan's letter. Okay. Speaking specifically to the Smallville episode, what the fuck? As I said, I don't care for Superman, but I like that he's around, if that makes sense. Oh, makes perfect sense. Okay. I really want to like the movies. I want to like Smallville, but it's crap. He's living in Metropolis. He's flirting with Lois. Why isn't he Superman already? Well, you and I referred to last Why episode. Why is this show named called Metropolis? Right. I've been saying that for years now. I don't know if we've already introduced this phrase. I'm going to introduce it today, if I, we have not. The get-to-the-fucking-monkey syndrome. Yeah. 
which is from a great song by an Australian band called The Tripods. Okay. About the King Kong movie. All right. I really find Jack Black funny and but Adrian Brody the... is swell. Naomi Kent Watts is cute and all, but get to the fucking <laughs> monkey! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe I'll put it at the end of the show. But at the show. end of this, yeah. We've had enough sizzle. Give us the steak already. Yeah. Put them in the suit. Stop jerking us around. And I heard that they renewed it for another yes, season. Yes, as of today, it was announced they were... Well, does not die. Well, let's get back to Jonathan for a second. Why does Green Arrow think a suitable disguise is a pair of douchey sunglasses? Why doesn't Superman do anything heroic? That was my main problem with the JSA episode, that he basically just stood around and looked at people. The villain was unbelievable crap. The JSA accepting Dr. Fate looked pretty cosplay... And the whole thing was just an exercise in wankery. But apparently that's what fans of the show want, and who am I to deny them that? Anyway, this has gone on for way longer than I intended, so I'll stop. Keep with the good work. Jonathan. Once again, Jonathan, thank you very much for the letter. It seems like you and I are in an absolute agreement about absolute justice, but right now that is the formula of the show, which is you get two or three episodes of this treading water with Clark, and then you get an episode which drags in a major DCU icon, Mm-hmm. Whether it be the Legion of Superheroes or the Justice, Justice League, I, actually, or as I like to call them, the Jeff Johns Fetish Pals, okay, or Zantana, just so that the fan, because they, I think they know that if the comic book audience abandons them, the ratings will go away. You know what episode like Absolute Justice yep. is? You remember the old gag you see in the Warner Brothers mm-hmm. cartoons where they would put a $5 bill on the end of a fish hook and yeah. throw it out in the street yeah. and reel a little bit the character? They threw out episodes like that every once in a while and reel it so just to keep the fans... So the fans, comic fans will be happy. So the comic, again, fat happy babies. So the comic Ooh. fans will stay with the show. Yeah. It seems to me there's two camps that follow Smallville. You've got the regular comic book right. fans who are sitting around waiting and hoping for more and more of their favorite DC characters. And then right. you have... The other crowd, who I like to call the 9021 crowd, that follow this show because they like seeing that bullshit angst and drama with superpowers. Well, let's not mince words. The CW is built, and I I had this discussion with Donovan last night. It's obvious now who got the short end of that merger. Of all the UPN shows that got transported over when the WB and the UPN became the CW, right? All the UPN shows are gone. Oh, yeah. Well, well, you know what I call it. I made no secret about it. CW. If you like pretty white people with no problems, Mm -hmm. who think they have problems, but they really don't because you're rich, you're young, you're white, you're pretty, what problems could you possibly... That's why I say it's this bullshit angst that they manufacture. Which is why I I hereby propose the CW be referred to as the Caucasian Wankery Network. Yeah. But you notice how, like, all of the black-oriented shows that kept... UPN alive for years. They got rid of all of them. Within two years. Especially, Everybody Hates Chris, and there was nothing wrong with the ratings of it. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, Everybody Hates Chris wouldn't have been brought over if it had low ratings. They brought the highest rated shows from UPN over the CW. They brought over Girlfriends. Girlfriends. Everybody Hates Hates Chris. Chris. They brought over Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars, yep. What else did they bring over? There was one or two other shows they brought over. There was one or two, and they got rid of all of them. Within two years, they were all gone. They were all gone. And now it's just... A constant stream of... They brought the game over? Yeah, the that's game, right. Yeah, the game, game lasted game. a year after yeah. the port. Uh-huh. But Jonathan, thank you very much. You are always welcome back here. And I particularly appreciate your letter because it allowed us to elaborate on certain points. Right. And I felt got lost in all my vitriol. 
And Jonathan, don't forget to send us that link. Please do, and we will definitely pimp your podcast on our podcast, because we're all about trying to create a sense of community here. Absolutely. And unlike some, we don't go around pretending that there are no other podcasts, that there are no other opinions out there. Yes, we welcome other opinions, and we welcome other people recommending their podcast to us. And if you ask us to mention it on air, we have no problem with doing so. Let me state this to everybody. If you've got a 30 second or less promo that you want us to put on an episode, because I usually try to put a promo before and after every episode, I'll gladly put it on there. As long as it's not offensive. I will not be promoing the chicken fucking podcast. And what have you got against chicken fucking, may I ask? (laughs) Have you ever tried chicken fucking? (laughs) Jeez. God almighty, man. Let's get to the fucking monkey, okay? (laughs) Go back to the fucking chicken. As you contact Kelly, we should put together a glossary of Better in the Dark Terms. The Better in the Dark Glossary. Yeah, yeah. so that we don't have to explain you love your characters and love your characters or the monkey syndrome or the Mary Jane syndrome and, and stuff are like that. You, would you be talking about the same Kelly that is the webmaster of the Better in the Dark you mean, page? You mean bitdsite.com yeah. where you can find everything you need to know in one easy to navigate area? One stop shopping for right. everything Better in the dark. That's right. That's what I think I'm talking about. Okay. Just wanted to clarify. Okay. We're a half hour into this, so you think maybe... It's it's time to get to the fucking monkey. It's time to get to what it's supposed to be about. So who wants to start? Yeah, you go first, because you've been dying to get to this movie for... I'm surprised. ...for the long... It's like, it's jinx. It's funny, because when we were talking about preparing the show, I said, it amazed me that we've been four years, and I have not mentioned this movie once. Yeah, then finally when you got to do it, audacity crap yeah. out on us. So I know you've been wanting to get to this for the longest time. This is, and the funny thing is, this is one of my favorite films. Yeah, I have seen this movie far too many times. That I think a healthy human being should have to see a movie. Yeah, you brought it over one right. day, and me and you sat here and we watched it together. Because I do remember seeing this, like we were talking right. earlier. They used to show it quite a bit on Channel Two, Channel Two, like CBS Friday Night Movie, Friday Night Movie. We're talking, of course, about 1968's Head. Starring the monkeys. The monkeys, America's answer to the Fab Four. The beat. I still think that there is a really good biopic in the story of the monkeys. I think so too. Because it's a fascinating thing of these four people who were thrown together totally by fate. One thing that never fails to amuse me is mm-hmm. how, for so many years, they were looked upon as just pale imitation. Right. Of the Beatles, they were looked upon as a joke, weren't right. real musicians. However, today, they're regarded pretty seriously, yeah. and their place in pop culture has been cemented, and they're regarded. People mm-hmm. saying their music wasn't as bad as right. it was made out to be. Well, let's give you a little background for the few people who don't know. Okay. About. The Monkees were formed by Raber Productions after Beatlemania hit America as a American Beatles that they were used as the basis of a television show. Even before they started looking for the other members, they'd already signed Mickey Dolenz, who was a child actor, right. who was in a show called Circus Boy previously, and it had a fan base. Okay. They went across the country auditioning people, mm-hmm. cast two musicians. From Greenwich Village here in New York, they cast Peter Tork, mm-hmm. a folk singer, and from Texas... They cast Michael Nesmith. Yeah, Michael Nesmith. His mother was a secretary. Yes. She's the woman who actually invented liquid paper. Exactly. And he's the only one that really came from money, because he really didn't have right. to do the show, because, you know, his family was rolling. Although I, I, I find it funny that at the same audition that Michael Nesmith auditioned, mm-hmm. a young man by the name of Charles Manson Ooh. had auditioned. Apparently, though, he was 
absolutely awful. That Charles Manson. Yes. Mm. Have you ever listened to the Charles Manson record album? No. I didn't even know he you put out Charles. Get out of here. I don't think I have it anymore. He put out a record album with the family. I don't know if I should be disturbed or surprised that you had a Charles Manson record album. It's bizarre because it's really bad of Captain Beefheart. It explains so much about you now. <laughs> <laughs> but go ahead, Tom. Go right ahead. Just solo one minute while I get okay, this baseball yes. back. Okay. Why are you so serious, Derek? <laughs> I don't understand why you're so nervous around me. I ain't nervous now that I got this back. <laughs> no, but seriously, Charles Manson, he really did put out a record album. Yes. I, it's called the Charles Manson Family Album. Fascinating stuff. Um, I think it's still in print somewhere. It's not very good, and it's more like listenable as a curiosity. But getting back to the story of the monkeys. Oh, okay. They added a fourth actor, Davy Jones. Okay. Who, by the way, incidentally, is the reason why we have David Bowie. Because David Bowie's original name was Davy Jones. Oh. But they already had a Davy Jones in uh, SAG. Mm-hmm. So he had to change his name, and he picked that name because of the knife. Interesting. So they started out, people forget there was a really intense wave of monkey mania that first year that that show was on. That first year, a lot of the music was written by some great Tin Pan Alley songwriters. Mm-hmm. Neil Diamond, Carol Bear Sager, Harry Nielsen. Great, great yeah. songwriters of the 60s. But the backlash happened the following year. These four guys, the two that were musicians, became competent musicians. Because wasn't there even a rumor going around for a while that it wasn't them singing? Yes. They really weren't singing, that it was other music, they were just lip-syncing. And they even had to go on tour to prove that it was actually them singing. You know who their opening act almost was for their first tour? Rolling Stones. No. Who? A young man that Michael Nesbitt became friends with when he took a trip up to Seattle by the name of Jimi Hendrix. Get out! Screen Gems, which of course owned the Monkees' copyright, said, no, nah, we don't think so. This guy's too freaky. So, wow. But Michael Nesbitt was always interested in the alternative music. One of the people that he championed, and he shows up both in the TV series and in this movie, is Frank Zappa. Oh, okay. After the TV series was canceled after the second season, the Monkees still put out music. Mm-hmm. But they were met with a lot of derision, and eventually they got a contract to do two movies. The first one was Head. The story goes that the four of them, Jack Nicholson and Bob Rafelson, went up to a mansion in the canyons, got really high on a lot of drugs, and emerged from that mansion with the script for Head. Why does it not surprise me? So, the plot. Such as it is. Such as it is. I still say it's up for debate. It's a stream of consciousness. Yeah, it's a very stream of consciousness. It, it opens up on an opening for, of a new bridge, and the mayor is giving a speech when the monkeys break through the ribbon that he's about to cut to let the yeah. cars through and jump into the river. Actually, there's like a very loosely connected group of sketches. Yeah. And blackout gags mm-hmm. that kind of work in on themselves. For example, a character in one sketch will show up in another sketch yeah. down the line. Or they'll leave one sketch and end up on the set of a previous sketch. One of my favorite sketches is the one with Mickey Dolan's in the desert with the oh, machine. I'm quiet, isn't it? James Michael Dolan. You shut up. No, you shut up. You shut up. No, you. 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 My favorite part, though, is that when he goes, all right, I will. I will. And Mickey Dolenz looks up with this look of demented glee. Yeah, you know, he always had these wonderful yeah. facial expressions. But you know, my theory about this whole movie is Victor Mature's yes. delusions. 
Because there's no other reason why Victor Mature is in this. He pops right. in every once in a while. And you say, why is Victor Mature in this movie? You have all these different characters showing up. Frank Zappa shows up with a talking cow. Yeah. At one point. Which by the time he does, you're not surprised. Yeah, at this point, you're like, I give up. You've got Timothy Carey, who many people consider to be one of the greatest actors of that time, shows up as Lord High and Low, has this weird preacher man in the middle of the desert. It's like a war movie sketch. There is a desert movie sketch. There is a western sketch. There's that sketch that they're in the middle of. And all of a sudden, Peter Tork breaks out of the fourth wall. He starts to yeah. his motivation. And mm-hmm. you see Jack Nicholson and Bob Rafel's right. gun. Yeah. What's, what's wrong with you? He said, well, why am I doing this? Well, Peter Tork, of all people, is worried yeah. about his motivation for a scene. <laughs> I think one of the great lures of this film is it's perhaps the best set of songs the monkeys have ever put together. Right. And it's not a lot of their most well-known songs yeah. either. Stuff like Circle Sky. Mm-hmm. Like the, the wonderfully titled, long song titled, Do I Have to Do This All Over Again? And my absolute favorite song. And it surprised me because of all the mm-hmm. vocalists in the Monkees, I can't stand Davy Jones' vocals the most. But his song, which is written by Harry Nielsen, is called Daddy's Song. Don't each one of them have their own song? And the, Peter Tork's song is called Has We Go Along, which oh. is the one where they're all up in the Rocky Mountains. Okay. Michael Nesbitt's is Circle Sky. I don't know which one Mickey Dolan's is. Mm -hmm. Daddy's song is Davy Jones, and it's written by Harry Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautifully choreographed piece with him and a very young Tony Basil. Mm, Okay. Doing a little soft shoe. It's almost like a a Broadway number. Okay. Just the two of them. Apparently the, the director shot them in black shirts and white ties. Yeah. And then reversed it with a white tuxedo. And they just kept cutting back and forth in almost like a stroboscopic effect. Right. Something that was... Duplicated what? Right. Nearly 30 years later in that song. What was that song? Well, you gotta be bad. Yes. You got, right. Where it's the same thing, where she's in a simple white outfit mm-hmm. with a black background that is reversed. Matter of fact, we've been talking about this and you made a very good point that I want you to expound right. upon when you said anybody's interested in music videos yeah. should watch this movie because this is a precursor. It's, to one of, not, it's not the only one, video. but it's definitely one of the ones that are a precursor along with those short films that the Beatles did. Yeah. To tie in with rubber salt. But it's definitely because the movie stops and you get little videos. Mm -hmm. The Porpoise Song, which is probably the most popular of the songs, is shot in this whole solarized undersea world with mermaids and things. We talked about Daddy's Song. We talked about As We Go Along. Can You Dig It? Which is the four of them has sheiks. Mm-hmm. In the middle of a hairy yeah, yeah, yeah. with all the belly dancers. The dancing girls, yeah. The monkeys deserve, even if they didn't have good music, which they do, the fact that they came back in the 80s after yeah. MTV started showing the... Because they started putting their series in heavy rotation, right. and that's when they really had that really... People started going like, the music. hey, you know, the monkeys weren't that bad after No, they Pleasant Valley Sunday is, just, to me, just as good as anything as the Beatles did in, yeah. on their best day. Of the... For vocalist, I think Mickey Dolenz has the best voice. Yeah. Surprising. Yeah, he was very underrated as a singer. As yeah. a singer. Might not be the most classically trained voice mm-hmm. of the four of them, but it's the most emotional. Like, when you and I talk about that cover of Common People that William Shatner did. Yeah. Where... Joe Jackson's voice, not the greatest voice in the world, <laughs> but it is one of the most emotionally raw voices in pop. He puts it all out there when one he sings. One of the most improbable duets of all time. But yeah. it works! Yeah. yeah. Mickey Dolan's has much of the same qualities in that yeah. his voice is very emotionally raw. And throughout the Monkees catalog, Pleasant Valley Sunday, Zoran Zam, great, great song that he does. This film... Opened in 1968 at the 8th Street Playhouse here in New York. Mm -hmm. And closed two days later. 
I believe it. In its first run, it made, I'm trying to remember the exact, something around the realms of $6,488. When I saw it years later when you brought it over yeah. and I got to see it for like the first time without any commercials, or anything, there's a strong undercurrent that you get up under there that this is a movie where they just said, fuck it. For a change, we're going to do exactly what, what we, we want to do. And we don't care if it makes a dime. It, it, we don't care if anybody sees it. But at least we can say we did it for If once. you ever see in the second season of The Monkees, there are a couple of episodes where it's obvious that they have more career control. And they're not exactly as whacked out as this movie is, mm-hmm. but they're very close. Yeah. The last episode they ever did, which was they were like the super monkeys fighting Rip Torn and his plant creatures. It's very counterculture and very weird. Very surrealistic. Yeah. This film became a mainstay, as we mentioned early on in this long and rambling review, on the CBS Friday Night movie, along with Good Time, the Sunny the and Cher movie. movie. Yeah. And Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter. Daughter, yeah, with her and If you guys are interested in these bizarreties, I'm sure we can find them and we could do an episode. Yeah, let us know, because back then, just about every popular group during the 60s, right. especially after the Beatles hit big, they put a movie out. Herman's Hermit Dave had, Clark 5, they, yeah. they made a movie. They made know. one. Paul Revere and the Raiders. Well, the thing about the, the Dave Clark, I'm trying to remember the name of the Dave Clark 5 one, it's kind of the badass one of the block. Okay. It's got a much harder edge to it than the others. I can't believe that they did not one, but two films with yeah. Herman's Hermits. Yeah, and I remember, because they showed it on TCM yeah. not too long ago. They showed both movies. I said, they did two movies? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but if you guys want us to review, let us know. We'll Netflix the suckers. But this is definitely, if you are interested in the history of music video, if you're interested in psychedelic cinema, because this is probably the best example of psychedelic cinema. Oh, yeah, yeah. Head and shoulders above that stupid Casino Royale, or the Modesty Blaze that we're going to get to sometime soon. Check this out. This is really, really, really good. So So we're on me now? We're on you now. Little bit of backstory, folks. I'm walking through Target. Because I'm looking for a video because my nieces and nephews, mm-hmm. they come to visit me. So I'm looking for some stuff that will keep them occupied while I'm trying not to lose my mind <laughs> while they're here. Because right. they're a handful. I spy something sitting in the aisle. It must have been fate mm-hmm. because this was the only copy left in there. And I said, I absolutely have to have it. What is it you may ask? Everybody knows about Black Belt Jones. Right. The classic martial arts movie with Jim Kelly. Right. As I'm showing to Tom, I have Black Belt Jones. However, for years I have been telling people that there was a sequel to Black Belt Jones. Because people ask me, well, how come he never made a sequel? I said, well, yes, he did. But this movie has never been available, as far as I know, on VHS or in any form. However, it is now available on DVD. It is, of course, the legendary, what has been built as the worst martial arts movie ever made, (laughs) Hot Potato. Hot Potato, Hot Potato. And what it's on, if you're a cheapo like me, go to your local Mm -hmm. Target, and they have a whole section. Four film favorites. They're four movies. Mm -hmm. And they put them on two DVDs, right? which I'm showing Tom to mm-hmm. confirm, and they're nine ninety nine. Yeah. To me, if you're a person, sometimes you just want the movie. Out of all these movies on here is Black Bill Jones, Black Samson, Hot Potato, and Three the Hardway. The only one I would want a commentary for is Three the Hardway, right. but I do like having Black Bill Jones and Hot Potato exactly. and Black Samson in my collection. So well, I've seen like the Superman yeah. collection, right? and I've been sorely tempted to pick that up. I believe that a couple of them have commentary. The fourth one has that really interesting commentary I talked about in the two-part episode we did with Michael Bay. Yeah, some of them do have commentaries because they have the lethal weapon. They have right. all four, and two of them have commentaries, I believe. Mm-hmm. So some of them have commentaries, and some of them don't. If you just want to get a whole bunch of movies and not spend a right. lot of money on it, I highly recommend these four film favorites. Go to Target. It's a whole section that they have devoted to them. That's how I got the Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. I, we're going to record in April, folks. Yep, I bought 
all eight movies for less than 20 bucks. Mm. I'm sorry. You can't beat that. After that plug for which Warner Brothers is not paying me, bastards, <laughs> what is Hot Potato about? First of all, I should just mention right up front, a lot of people will think this is not a sequel to Black Bill Jones because the tone of it is so completely different. Right. This is played more for comedy. There's nobody from the first movie in this one except for Jim Kelly, who plays Black Bill Jones, who is sent to a mythical country. It was filmed in Thailand. Gorgeous location work, I might add. He's sent there because a U.S. senator's daughter has been kidnapped. And the U.S. senator is working out some sort of trade agreement. So this warlord has kidnapped the senator's daughter and is holding her until the senator agrees to stop the trade agreement. Black Bill Jones goes and rounds up his two partners. One guy is called the White Rhino, who is like a Jim Belushi type of wannabe. He's a big, <laughs> fat guy. He walks around in a whole movie with one of those old-fashioned white and red checkered tablecloths. A serape? He wears it as a poncho. Right. And okay. apparently he's hiding food up under there because he's always pulling out <laughs> salamis and hams and all okay. kinds of things. Yeah. So it's Kelly and his two partners. They have to go out into the jungle, mm -hmm. and they have to find the warlord's uh, camp, and they have to rescue the senator's daughter, who, by the way, has been changed. The warlord is smart enough to move her from the location once he finds out Black Bill Jones is coming and replaces her with a prostitute lookalike, which is the one that Black Bill Jones and his partners rescued, but they don't know that she's stolen something from the warlord and some important right. documents. Eventually, what happens is that they find out that they've been deceived, and they've got to go, and they've got to rescue the real one. Let me ask you this. Yes. Is there, in fact, punchy, punchy, run, run? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of punchy, punchy, run, yes. run. Yes. Unfortunately, it's not very good, punchy, punchy, run, oh. run. This is coming from a guy that loves Jim Kelly and thinks that this guy should have had a bigger career than he did, especially after Bruce Lee died. Mm -hmm. Everybody expected him to blow up right. big time, and he never did. Jim Kelly actually walked away from movies, and he's been a tennis pro for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. He just up and walked away from martial arts completely. Who knows why? Get the movie. If you want the four film favorites collection for Black Bill Jones, Three to Hardway, Black Samson, and this one. But I wouldn't advise you getting the movie by right. itself. At the end, there's the credits. Big time. Fights choreographed by Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly is not very good at choreographing his own fights. Because, no, because... You know how it's a staple of martial arts movies where you have the hero surrounded by 20 guys and they attack one at a time. There were scenes in this movie you can literally see the extras with their arms folded <laughs> in the background waiting for their cue to jump in. Now serving number eight. There is absolutely no suspense in the fights at all. Black Bill Jones kicks the ass of all these guys so effortlessly that you just know, really, there's no... Strangely enough, the guy that plays the White Rhino, his fight scenes are interesting because like Joe Don Baker in Golden Needles, where he was a brawler up mm -hmm. against guys with Kung Fu food, yeah... That's what the rhino is. He, he's a brawler. Mm -hmm. So his fights are kind of interesting because he is a brawl up against guys with kung fu mm -hmm. and karate. There's a scene where there are guys dressed as gorillas popping out of a river for some reason attacking them when they're on a boat. Okay, gorillas, guys in fatigues with rifles, or gorillas as in ook, ook, give me a banana? Ook, ook, give me a banana. <laughs> Jeez, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. There's one part Black Bill Jones makes a cannon out of a wagon wheel. With fireworks as the rockets. Okay. It makes absolutely no sense. It's nowhere near the, the classic fight with Gloria Hendry in yeah. the first one. You know, in, so in, the, in the car. In the car. Right. Or even what I like to call the famous three-second fight where they're in the karate school and the guys come in and Black Bill Jones tells the guy... 
turn the lights on and off every three seconds. Right. He turns it on and whap, 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 and then turns it off and he's gone. There's nothing like that here in Hot Potato. Still, it's an entertaining goof if you're in the mood for it. If you and your buddies are sitting around with some beers and you just want to move in the goof form, it's fun on that level. Let me ask you this. Was this a vanity production? No. What really surprises me is that the same guy who directed Enter the Dragon, Robert Klaus. Right. He directed Black Bill Jones, but he didn't direct this one. It was the writer of Black Bill Jones, and he wrote Hot Potato. Right. He directed this. I blame him for the comedic tone of this one and screwing up his own character, really, because right. that's what I think he did. However, it's a guilty pleasure for me. I'm glad to have it, if only for no other reason that I can hold it up to people and say, yes, it exists. Right. It's here. That's my first movie. Course, every time you say hot potato, I think my friend Juan, when he first heard uh, Rocky Amadeus, yeah. kept thinking that Falcon was singing hot potato, hot, hot, potato. hot potato. Yeah. <laughs> hot potato, hot potato. And now you know, of course, I can't hear that without thinking of that Simpson episode. <laughs> Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. So, I'm going to throw it back to Tom now. And it's time to visit a place that we visited last year for our Obscure Movies episode. What's that? Australia! Oh, down under. We mentioned last year in last year's Obscure Movies episode, I have gone into reacquainting myself with my Ausploitation roots, thanks to the documentary that I'm going to recommend it again, called Not Quite Hollywood. And one of the films that was talked about at some length in that documentary, and one when I saw that documentary, I had to seek this out, is a film called Fair Game, mm-hmm. shot in 1986, directed by Mario Andreaccio, and written by Rob George, starring Cassandra Delaney, who was Mrs. John Denver. Oh, really? Okay. My contention is that this movie, it's very short, it's just 90 minutes, is the Aristotelian idea of an exploitation film. Because mm. when I say exploitation, what do you think of? Australian-made exploitation film. What, what elements do you think have to be in it? The Outback, right. Aborigines. Right. Cars. Oh, yeah, well, of course. You know, the Mad Max movie. Mad it Max. seems like all the best Australian yeah. movies have some type of car in it. Yeah. Nudity. Oh, well, it can't be exploitation without right. nudity. The first shot of this film shows where its heart is, because it's a shot in the middle of a fog bank where this big, giant monster truck, and it literally is a monster truck, because the way they designed the grill, it looks like a giant mouth rising out of the marsh. Okay. On its way. And it turns out this giant monster truck is the property of this trio of poachers. Because it's, like I said, the Australian idea of what an Australian exploitation film is, there's the kind of ruggedly handsome reserved guy. Mm -hmm. There's the big, fat, jolly guy. Okay. Played by the improbably named Gary Who, W-H-O. And the little scrappy guy with the hyena laugh. They're approaching, and they end up on the land of Jessica, played by Cassandra Delaney. Mm. Very attractive young woman, long, blonde, curly hair, who runs a wildlife sanctuary in the outback. They are killing animals in the sanctuary. Gotta, Jessica gotta says, you've got to leave. This area is protected. You can't be killing the wildlife here. They don't want to leave. But we'll be raping you, Lassie. <laughs> she goes to the sheriff's department. And they end up killing one of her prize kangaroos. And she goes into the town to file a complaint with the sheriff. And the ruggedly handsome guy, because she's also an artist, tries to buy one of her paintings as a we're sorry gesture. But she's like, no, you know how you can prove that you're sorry? Get off my fucking land. Get off my land, yeah. They don't want to go. In fact, they start beginning a campaign of terror against her to keep her out of their way. Like killing her dog and leaving it in the front seat of her car. 
You know when a dog gets snuffed that any movie criminal means business? Oh, yeah. Ultimately, what they end up doing when this escalation gets to its fever pitch is they don't rape her, Mm -hmm. but they do strip her near naked, strap her to the grill of that monster truck, and make her human hood ornament, and drive around with her for about ten minutes. Good God. You just sit there and you go, I cannot believe I'm seeing this. (laughs) And... As is the tradition of all these movies where a woman is brutalized for 70, 80 minutes, the last 10 minutes is composed with her getting revenge. Oh, of course. Well, uh, it was a classic, I spit on your grave, uh, you fact, know, yeah. James died when I told him about this film. He said, it sounds like it is the Australian version, version of, of I spit on your I grave. I spit on your grave, yeah. It's not as kind of skeevy as that film was. That film has got yeah, kind of a skeeviness to yeah, it. Yeah, it does. That's not to say that this film isn't skeevy. But and I spit on your grave makes you want to take a bath yeah. after you've seen it. This is one film that you just sit there and you say, I can't. I want to meet Rob George and say, <laughs> thank you, sir, for just fucking up my mind for a while. <laughs> I just want to sit down with him for about a half an hour and say, what the hell were you thinking? Yeah, exa- exactly. There are plenty of movies and TV shows I've seen. I would just like to sit down with the director or the writer yeah. for a half hour and say, what was your state of mind when you made this movie? I'm sure you'll agree that the best exploitation films give you one you, moment like that. Where oh, you just sure. You go, the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. It's that scene where Johnny Depp sinks into the bed and the blood geysers yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. And you just go, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. You look at it, you just can't believe what you're watching. And in the case of this... Oh, like in one of my favorite horror movies. Phantasm. Phantasm. Where that fucking flying ball yeah. comes around for the first time and wham! And then the drill, and yeah. if it's not only that, the drill comes out there, and you say, holy and, shit. Yeah, exactly. And you go like, what the hell am I watching just now? Or Night of the Demons, not mm-hmm. the original. The one that was done by Del Tenney in the 80s with Linnea Quigley. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've film. never seen that. It's, it's a really cheap-ass horror film, but there is one moment that just... It has that Frigiano, I can't believe I just saw it, when Linnea Quigley, who has already been possessed by this evil spirit, Angela, she takes out her lipstick and she fixes her mouth and she puts the cap back on and starts playing with it around her bare breast Uh and pushes it straight through her nipple. Holy shit. It's these moments that, if you're a fan of exploitation cinema, that's you live you, for. That's what you live for. That's what you want to see. You <laughs> want to see that thing that, that makes you know that you're not dealing with a well mind. You are here. not watching Care Bears. <laughs> and when you see Mrs. John Denver stripped near neck, she's bare-breasted, mm-hmm. she's got most of her top on, but she's in tatters, strapped to this big honking monster truck, uh-huh. screaming for her life as they're driving her all around the outback. You're like going, I can't believe somebody made this. That's a movie that couldn't get made today because you know you'd have all of these women yeah. group that's screaming about, oh, violence against women. and Well, they uh, wouldn't do, because th- that type of stunt work doesn't exist much anymore. No, it doesn't. Even if it wasn't her, and it looks like it's her, if it was a stunt woman, somebody actually probably spent the better part of a day being oh, driven sure, around yeah. like that in yeah. the dust and the grime. It's a very short film. It's in, it's out, it doesn't have any pretensions of being anything that, other than the revenge melodrama it's supposed to be. goes in, it tells its story, and it's out. I do think people should give it a, a look. Particularly if you yeah. like that era of Australian filmmaking, you've got to give this thing a look, at least one. Not every movie has to be a two-and-a-half-hour yeah. epic. Sometimes you just want a movie, 80, 90 minutes. Right. Get in, tell your story, and get out. Okay. Well, Go back and listen to the last couple of review episodes. What's one of the major complaints that we have? The films are getting too long. 
for their story. Yeah. Some movies, I mean, come on. You don't need to take three hours to tell. Just do it. One of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why I liked it was because it didn't take me all afternoon to see it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic Four, Rise right. of the Silver Surfer. Taken was in and out Taken. in 94 minutes. There you go. Everything doesn't have to be an epic. So I guess it's back to me, it's right? It's back to you. And I'm going to go back into four film favorites. For another movie that was on here, I hadn't seen in years. When I watched it again, and you know, you just have to love black exploitation mm-hmm. because sometimes the sheer goofiness of the situations, but they're played so totally straight that it rises it to a sort of kabuki-like right. <laughs> level of mm-hmm. awareness. I'm talking about Black Samson, which is a movie from 1974 starring Rockney Tarkington as Samson. You get the idea of what type of movie this is when we first open up in the bar that right. Samson runs, where he owns and operates this bar. It's got the cages with the go-go mm-hmm. girls in there, the bare-breasted, and they're in there with the titties wiggling. Everybody's at the bar, and they're having a good time, and they're drinking in. The Duke's box is going, and Samson's walking around. He's like seven feet tall. He's high-fiving everybody, and then the camera slowly pans behind the bar, and you see that there's a lion yeah. <laughs> sitting behind the bar. Samson has a pet lion he keeps. So somewhere I get the impression that maybe Mike Tyson saw this movie and said, I really like that. I really like that lion. And I mean, there what do you think, little Blaine? Oh, man. That? <laughs> don't, get, don't get started. <laughs> and there are scenes where he's walking down the street with the lion on the chain. like, And nobody seems right. to think it's... Well, why is this guy walking down the street with a lion? Hey, Samson, what's going on? What's happening, man? Dude wants to walk his lion. Dude's going to walk his lion. Listen, I'm not going to tell a seven-foot guy, and he carries this imposing African staff mm-hmm. that he uses. He never uses a gun or a knife. He just uses his strength and the staff. You expect at some point that he's going to stick the line on somebody. Amazingly, that never happens. The line is actually kind of docile. I get the impression that while the line was on set, they probably did keep him doped up. Because the line really doesn't do much except look and walk around. Our old friend William Smith, Mm -hmm. he's in this movie as well, playing the gangster Johnny Napa. And what is happening is this. Johnny Napa wants to expand his drug trade, and he wants to do it in Black Samson's neighborhood. But Black Samson has traditionally been the protector of this neighborhood. He doesn't allow drugs in there. The citizenry, they kind of look up to him. And in one excellent scene that I like, because you usually don't find scenes like this in black exploitation movies, he goes to Johnny Napa's father, and we get the impression that they've had this long-standing agreement right. where Mr. Napa is, okay, you know what, I respect your neighborhood, but you don't mess with me, I won't mess with right. you. Because Black Samson goes to him and says, well, listen, your son is trying to move in on me. And Mr. Knapp says, oh, shit. He says, all right, you know what? I'll take care of it. I'm sorry. But, of course, Johnny Knapp doesn't listen to him. And he starts his campaign right. of terror by having Black Samson's girlfriend kidnapped and raped, beating up on the citizenry. And he finally blows up Samson's bar. He shouldn't have did that. Right. <laughs> because now this is when Samson goes after him and gets revenge. Why is this movie interesting? It's interesting because... Since it's Black Samson, he makes certain references to certain events that happened in the past as if he is actually the original Samson. And you don't know if he's just delusional and fantasizing because he talks about pilgrimages in the desert and how he protected these people Mm -hmm. long ago. And he's been protecting these people for longer than anybody can imagine. So he makes these little allusions and you're kind of thinking, does he just think he's the real Samson from biblical times? Or maybe he is, maybe he isn't. We don't know. But the acting, of course, is nothing to speak of in this. There's no Academy Award winning performances. But then again, it doesn't have to be. It's a black exploitation movie. A lot of 
good performances. William Smith is good at what he does. He's been making exploitation movies for, what, 50 years now. The guy is still alive, mm-hmm. and he's still doing his thing. It's a fun movie if you want to delve into black exploitation. And I know that we get requests all the time from people that ask us, well, where should I start at if right. I want to... Is it a classic? No. I would advise you to start with stuff like Three the Hard Way right. or Black Belt Jones or Shaft or right. Superfly. But however, if you do see those movies and you like them and you want to go deeper into the genre, by all means, get yourself Black Samson. It's on that four film favorites collection. So if you don't and that's want, that's like what ten bucks for it's, those? Yeah, ten dollars, and you get four movies: Black Belt Jones, Hot Potato, Black Samson, and Three the Hard. So if you want to not spend a lot of money and delve into Black exploitation, I would advise you to pick this up because you will get two classics and you'll get two not so classics (laughs) by all means. But you're probably better off really going out and get three to Hardaway, get Shaft, get Superfly because these are the classics. This is what everybody agrees. If you're going to start with black exploitation, this is what you get. But Black Samson is a lot of fun to watch. I enjoyed it a lot. Okay. I guess it's up to me again then. Well, yeah. And we're going back a little bit to 1981. To a film that has a very bad reputation. There's two reasons why it has a bad reputation we'll get into. But we're talking about a film that I found out is a favorite of our good friend Michael Bailey's. Shock Treatment. The second of three films which feature music by Richard O'Brien and Richard Hartley. Okay. Their first film, of course, everybody knows, is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Rocky Horror Picture Show. And this is kind of, sort of, a sequel Everybody knows the story of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Here was this film. A side quote. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the current uh, phrase. <laughs> here was this film that was made for next to nothing. The company that put it out did not have any faith in it whatsoever, but it turned out to be a major hit on the Midnight Circuit. So there was always pressure right from the start to make a sequel. Right. And there were several ideas. There was a script floating around for a while that had Rocky hiding away from Transylvania with the dead body of Dr. Frankenfurter looking to revive it. And there was one which had Frankenfurter showing up at Denton, which was, of course, Brad and Janet's hometown. Right. First off, he finds out that Janet is pregnant with his child. Okay. And he proceeds to try and turn Denton into a new Transylvania. That got nixed when Tim Curry decided he didn't want to be involved with it. He didn't want to be involved with it anymore, yeah. The other thing that happened was uh, there was a writer's strike around the time they were preparing this film. Mm. The original idea was they were always thinking they were going to shoot it in the actual Denton, Texas, which is an actual town, using actual locations. But then the writer's strike happened, and they had to go into production, but they couldn't use the locations. So what they ended up doing was they sent their wardrobe mistress to Denton to scour thrift stores for actual clothing that would be worn in this town, flew it back to England... Everything was shot on a set in England, and they rewrote the script so that it takes place in Denton, sure, but Denton has been turned into a giant television studio, Ah. run by one Farley Flavor. We see Brad and Janet settling in for today's slate of shows on DTV, Denton TV, which Mm. is being broadcast, assumably, all across the nation. No doubt it comes on the same night right after the Trooper show. Yeah, something like that. Exactly. <laughs> or they're like on the, on the same like cable channel somewhere. Yeah. Brad and Janet are chosen by Bert Schnick, the blind psychologist who runs a show where he fixes people's marriages. Okay. To be on his show. He claims that Brad has always had problems getting in touch with his emotions and prescribes for him a stay at the, the McKinley Hospital for the Insane which is run by Cosmo and Nation McKinley, played by Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn, okay. who played Riff Raff, Riff and, Magenta. Raff and Magenta. This is one of the ways they sort of 
tried to connect it with Rocky Horror, which is they took many of the cast members... Right, many of the cast members. ...and recast them right. in different roles. Charles Gray is in this film as one of the heroes. Well, he should get the shot once in a while. Yeah. Playing the hero. Usually you see him playing a bad guy. Usually, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. So he goes to this rest home run by the McKinleys. Meanwhile, we learn that Farley Flavors has the designs on Janet and wants to turn her into the spokesperson because he's a fast food magnet and he wants to start a, a Scientology-style church. And Janet is going to be his spokesperson. He's going to show people how, because of the fast food religion, how to become a perfect person like Janet. So Janet becomes <laughs> more and more transformed into this big diva star type person. Okay. And then we find out what Farley Flavors' actual relationship is to Brad Majors. They're both played by Cliff DeYoung. Give you a hint. His dad. No. Separated twins. Oh, okay. Separated at birth. Yes. I like this movie better than Rocky Horror. I'm going to put that out there right now. It's obvious from your description. It seems that I'm not surprised at that because... Apparently, this was designed to be a motion picture. That was, that's one of the reasons, exactly, is that Whereas, when you look at Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's obvious that it's a stage play. Because Jim Sharman and Richard O'Brien, who adapted it to the screen, did not do anything really to remove the staginess. Of right. It. And you and I have talked about this many times, because I remember actually going to the village. Yeah. I went to see twice, to see the midnight show when, when Rocky Horror played. And it played here in New York for 20 years. Many years, yeah. yes. And I went twice with friends of mine, and, you know, I didn't dress up in costume. Yeah. They dressed up in costume, because I'm too repressed to do that. But I went, and I saw it with the people getting up on right. stage and doing the whole thing. I liked it. Now, cut to years later, I watch Rocky Horror. I get the tape, and I put it in, and I'm watching it, and I realize it's not a very good movie. It's not. You know, w- without the whole thing with the audience participating, it's not the same experience yes. that you're not getting at home. And if you just watch it just as a movie... You realize it's not that good. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I know there's no, a lot not. of Rocky well, Horror fans out there. What me is how many people, because we're not the first people in the potosphere mm-hmm. to review this film. I'm surprised at how many people really hate it. But I think that these people are people who really have that connection that you and I don't have to Rocky Horror. Right. I think the music is better. One thing I took away from this film is an appreciation, though, that it's really a shame that... Hartley and O'Brien didn't continue collaborating. Because they did one more picture after this, a film called Return of Captain Invincible. Okay. Which, quite frankly, is dreadful. Okay. Even though it has a relatively clever... This is the one with Christopher Lee sings and dances. Yes. Christopher Lee sings and dances. It's based on the clever premise of Alan Arkin is a Superman analog mm. who becomes a bum after the House on American Activities Committee blacklists him because he has a red cape. Okay. But they have a real talent for this very quirky sort of music, yeah, where the lyrics are very kind of staccato and all sorts of weird imagery and lots of bizarre rhymes, and it works because they're playing around with the idea of these various spaces. So you've got a scene going on in the audience as they're watching a scene going on in the rest home, while in another scene, Janet goes back to visit her mom, and it's in a soap opera style. Okay. Well, it's just very weird. Uh, The other thing that really, I think, elevates this film above Rocky Horror is that they couldn't get Susan Sarandon or Barry Boswick back. Okay. So they got Cliff D. Young, and most importantly, they got Jessica Harper. (laughs) Who, A, 
has a much better singing voice than oh, Susan Sarandon. Not to take anything away from Susan Sarandon, because yeah. she's one of our favorite actresses, but she's not a singer. And I'm going to say something that might be considered heretical by some people. B is a hell of a lot sexier than Susan Sarandon is. Mm-hmm. That's one of the, the faults, I think, of Rocky Horror, is that Susan Sarandon can't carry the tune very well. So when she does her solos, she sounds thin and reedy. Mm-hmm. Jessica Harper has a Belter's voice. Oh, yeah. She's a little girl, too, but she's yeah. got a big voice. I mean, one of our favorite movies, Phantom of the Paradise, that she's in. But she's great. And, well, you know how I feel about that. I feel that's a much superior yeah. movie than the Rocky Horror. But everybody, they don't seem to mention that when they talk about Rocky Horror. They say, oh, Phantom of the Paradise. Well, have you ever seen it? Yes, it's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, and she has a couple of great numbers. Mm-hmm. One called Little Black Dress, which is a duet with Richard O'Brien. Mm-hmm. One called Me and Me. My favorite song of all of them is a song called Shock Treatment, which is the title number. Mm-hmm. The plot ultimately is very open to interpretation, just like right. the head. And one of the theories goes that this is all kind of like a shared delusion mm-hmm. of all the members of this insane asylum. Right. Because okay. the film ends with this long tracking shot of all the people that you've seen in the movie in straight jackets, in straight jackets singing okay. along to the Denton theme song, which is the first song you hear. Okay, so it's a shared delusion. Yeah, yeah. so that's one of the theories that goes on. There are other theories. I think the reason this film is not treated with the reverence that Rocky Horror is, mm-hmm. part of it was that it was forced down everybody's throat as the next cult picture. Cult picture, yeah. And as you and I have discussed many times, you cannot force a film to be a cult you film. Can, you cannot create a cult. A cult film gets created by the audience. By the audience, exactly. Which is why we don't have a lot of cult films. I think the most recent one I could look at and say that's a cult film is Trick or Treat. Okay. Which was supposed to come out three years ago, was suppressed by Warner Brothers because Brian Singer fell out of favor with the studio, was released on video this year, and everybody is like, this is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I still haven't seen it yet, but it's on my yeah. Netflix queue. This is how a cult film starts. When people start looking at it and discovering for themselves, going, this is really fucking cool. I think the other thing that killed it, and I think gave it a negative connotation, even before Rocky Horror Picture fans saw it, was that damned ad campaign. Because the ad campaign was a picture of Richard O'Brien as Cosmo, and the tagline was, not the sequel, the equal. And I think that put Rocky Horror Picture fans off. First of all, if you weren't a fan of Rocky Horror in the first place, there was nothing in the ad campaign to make you want to go see this. And because I mean, and if you were a Rocky Horror Picture fan, you got kind of offended by the fact that, that you were being told... This is as good. This is as good as Rocky. Exactly. There was nothing in it. Also, and I know the ad campaign that you're talking about, there's nothing about it that tells you what the movie is about exactly, other than it's the equal to Rocky Horror. Yeah. There are a lot of people that don't go to a movie with me and my wife, okay, whenever we go to a movie. She refuses to go to a movie unless I tell her what it's about. I said, well, go see the movie. No, right. no, 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 no. I don't want to see. No, no, no. You got to tell me what it's about first. You got to tell me. See, me, I'm the type of idiot that'll go mm-hmm. see a movie just because, well, so and so is in it or so and so directed it. But a lot of people don't do that. Right. They want to know what the movie is about, and, and the ad campaign for shot doesn't tell you anything about what the movie is about. I recommend this for people, particularly if you like off-the-beaten-track musicals. Yeah. Because it is a full musical, it features some really, I mean, I'm going to quote an example of the kind of lyrics we've got. This is from the song Dual Duet Okay, that Cliff Young sings with himself. Alright. Because it's back towards the end of the film where Farley and Brad have their confrontation. You're a dead-end, deadbeat, nowhere mister with a kisser like a Mississippi alligator's sister. See, I would have hated Ted to try to sing that. <laughs> but Cliff Young does it. Oh, okay, cool. 
apparently he's more talented than I gave him credit for in that respect. Yeah, I'm going to give you another example. From, I'm not a locum with a motive to suture myself. I've been a cynic for too many years. Playing doctor and nurse, it can be good for your health. I've seen clinics with those gimmicks in Tangiers. But if you open your heart to a smooth operator, he'll take you for all that you've got. He'll hand you a curse that'll be with you later. It'll shake you the way he takes off. Like a shot. It's that rhythm. Like I said, it's very staccato <coughs> rhythm. That's all right. And it makes it very unique, I think, as opposed to some of the other classical movie musical style music. And it's very much a rock and roll kind of beat. Okay. If you are a Rocky Horror Picture fan, you've got to kind of clear out that this is the sequel to Rocky Horror. Right. Power. And just look at it as a movie that's made by the same people. Yeah. But I know because basically the only thing that makes this a sequel is that Brad and Janet are in it. There's no reference back to Rocky Horror. There's no reference back to when we got married. Mm-hmm. It's just, here they are. This is a new adventure featuring these two characters we saw before. Right. Kind of like a James Bond movie where it's just another movie starring the same characters. So I highly recommend it. That makes, I think, me and Michael Bailey, that makes two people who like it. And if you and Michael Bailey like it, that's all that matters. That's right. So So we're back to me now, right? Yes, we are. This seems to be a theme running through my reviews Mm -hmm. this time around because they're all black exploitation movies. Because originally this episode was supposed to have aired in February, folks, during Black History Month. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that didn't happen. Holy shit, what is that? Oh, Alice in Wonderland. No, see, Tom's Wonder Box is over there on the other table. And I'm here at my desk. And this... Cat head popped up on his thing. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, what is that coming out of the screen? And it was an ad for Tim Burton's Alice in right. Wonderland. My theme is black exploitation. Not only black exploitation, but very rare black mm-hmm. exploitation movies. Because everybody's telling me they had never heard of Hot Potato. Right. And they had never heard of Black Samson. Now I round this out with another movie. Tom. Oh, God. I- a Caucasian man. When I mentioned this movie, he nearly screamed because he heard of it. Black people I have talked to for years have told me I am making it up. This movie does not exist. It exists, people. It is, without a doubt, one of the most insane movies that you will ever see. And it's one of my favorites. You know how earlier we made a reference to that the best exploitation films give you a moment where you go... I can't believe I'm watching this. Well, this movie's like this from start to yes, finish. Yes, it is. And I want to thank Turner Classic Movies Underground publicly <sighs> because this movie came on 2 o'clock in the morning. And even though I recorded it, because Tom said, listen, you've got to record it and burn it on the DVD yes. for me, I stayed up to watch it. That's how oh, bad I want man, to see it. I, I love t- this movie. I am talking about from 1975, Darktown Strutters. Go the story go about how I discovered this movie. Go right ahead. Totally by accident. Back in the days when there were still mom and pop video stores, mm-hmm. I belonged to a mom and pop video store on Myrtle Avenue, just off Fresh Pond Road. And I was getting into a black exploitation phase, <coughs> so I was watching the Shaft movies, and I was watching Superfly and the Rudy Ray Moore films. And I'm looking for another black exploitation film one Sunday night, and I come across this. Big clamshell case Okay. for Darktown Strutters. I'm like, okay, this might be fun. And I put it in the, the VCR that night. <laughs> and the film comes up, and you get that disclaimer, which you will tell us. No, I'll let you do it, because you love it so much. And then I'll take it from there. But I'm paraphrasing, because I don't have it in front of me, but it's to the effect of any similarities between this movie and the story of Cinderella, Cinderella is purely bullshit. Shit. 
At which point, a little iris opens up at the bottom of the screen, and this guy decked out in this faux high school musical fairy tale outfit looks up and goes, Oh, damn! Oh, damn! Is <laughs> it? But that's what it is. This movie starts off crazy. It's got elements of action. It's got a lot of good music. It's got musical numbers. Yeah. It's got science fiction. It's got slapstick comedy. And it is politically incorrect to the extreme. I gotta tell y'all folks right up front, because see, I'm a person, I do not believe in political correctness, I think it's a bunch of bullshit, but I do realize that people do follow it nowadays and they try to be politically correct, so if you are at all offended by the N-word, by scenes of black people eating watermelon, of black people in a cotton field, in a, <laughs> in a plantation in the middle of Los Angeles, yes. picking cotton, then you should avoid this movie. There's a scene because the bad guy, who's a colonel that runs barbecue. Yes, Hog Heaven. Right in the middle of Los Angeles, he has a a southern plantation. Mm -hmm. And when the heroine, played by Trina Parks, goes to see us. No, no, her mother is called Cinderella. Right, her mother. Which is why we got that. Okay, let me start at the beginning. Serena comes to Los Angeles with her gang of female bikers. Mm-hmm. And they come in there wearing these outrageous, and it's not really motorcycles, it's uh, trikes. Trikes. And they come in wearing their outrageous feathered helmets and their color-coordinated leather jumpsuits. And she's looking for her mother, Cinderella, who has went missing. And in the process of looking for her mother, finds out that the last place she was seen was at the plantation of this colonel who runs Hog Heaven. Mm-hmm. To get to his house, you have to go through a cotton field. And in this mansion, he has daily minstrel shows, guys in blackface mm-hmm. singing old black Joe, and he's dressed as a pig and slapping ribs together to show his appreciation. As a matter of fact, all of his henchmen are dressed up. Serena constantly refers to them as little piggies because they wear the pink capes and the pink sneakers, and they've got little diapers and diapers. You see where we're going with this, right, folks? Uh, this smacks of one of those films that where Roger Corman had a larger film than he was doing. He ended up finishing it early uh-huh. and turned to the people that were his cameraman and writers on the show and said, we've got three days left for all these sets. Here, make a movie. Well, the director of this, William Whitney, he directed Master of the World. Yeah, but you're totally right about this. Yes, this was done by Roger Corman's New World Pictures. Roger Corman was infamous for having some time left over, or he had some film stock left over. Right. And he would give it to a second unit cameraman or a writer or yeah. whatever and say, listen, you got two, three days. Go shoot me a right. movie. There is such a freewheeling, wonderful quality to this movie because it's not a free... The energy is always 100%. 100%. Trina Parks, I love her. I don't know why she didn't have a bigger career. You will remember her. Gloria Hendry always gets credit as right. being the first African-American woman in a James Bond movie. No, it was Trina Parks. She played Thumper mm-hmm. in Diamonds Off Forever, the infamous team Bambi and Thumper right. that kicked James Bond's ass. Right. And she was in this. She was in a couple of other things, but she never really had a big acting career. But she has that type of, thinking of the chick that played the cop. Oh, Teresa Graves. Teresa Graves, right. She's got that kind of Teresa Graves kind of sassiness. But I think she's a hell of a lot sexier. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. They have the infamous scene in this movie where Serena is in the basement. And she's found her <laughs> mother Cinderella locked up, but she doesn't have the keys to get her out. Mm-hmm. So she promises Cinderella, listen, I'm going to come back and get you. I just got to get this other biker gang. Led by Roger Mosley, right. who becomes her boyfriend. And then mm-hmm. he's got his own biker gang that he leads. The soundtrack was done by Stax Record. Yeah. 
she's walking through this subterranean yeah. dungeon looking for a way out and she passed by this cell and in the cell is the soul group the dramatics mm-hmm. who breaks out into what, what you, you see what you see is what, what you get it is what you get. Yeah. And she stops and she's dancing yeah. and singing. And it's never explained why they're being held in oh, the yeah. They do this song and she just goes on. Mm-hmm. They have a team of Keystone cops that drive around in a cop Headed car. Headed by Dick Miller. Yeah, Roger Corman alumni, Dick Miller. They have one big red light yes. on top of the car. It's not a whole and thing. It's that, that weird science for she. Yeah. Speaking of science fiction, the science fiction element comes in because the colonel, he has a cloning machine. Mm-hmm. Where he wants to clone his own black people that will only buy his watermelon, his chicken, and his rib. That's all he wants them to do. Yes, I know it's And let's not forget the KKK biker gang with the crucifixes for the whammy bars, (laughs) and the the leader of which is a transvestite. And every time he goes away on his motorcycle, they crank up the film so speed up, and you hear him go, up, up, and away! Oh, oh my god. There's a scene that's in there. Why this movie? Well, I know why this movie isn't on DVD. Because MGM, I think, owns the rights. Yeah. And they're like, if we put this out, there is no way we'd survive. Yeah, there is no way. Because this movie is so politically incorrect. Yeah. There's absolutely no way. First of all, they wouldn't know how to market it. How do you market it as a comedy, as... Black exploitation, yes, yes, as science, you yes. know, how do you, yeah, exactly, how do you market this movie, but I think you're right, with the inclusion of the KKK, especially being treated in such a comedic way, yeah. and the bad guy, who is so blatant about his plans to clone black people, and not only that, so blatantly patterned after Colonel Sanders, oh yeah, because he's a dead ringer for him. And his plan to just clone black people that would just eat watermelon, buy his ribs, and buy his chicken. Mm-hmm. That's his plot. I mean, what do you well, want to tell you? Why this film is not better known? I have no idea. I have no idea at all. This is as enjoyable a black exploitation film as anything I've seen. I think so. I sat and I, of course, I showed it to my wife and she was appalled. She yeah. said, oh my God, they actually made a movie like that? Well, yes, they did. For them to made it in 1975. Yeah. But maybe that's why it's not that And let's well not forget known. Serena's brother who is a master of an African martial art that boils down to bursting through doors. Yeah, yeah. running through walls and doors. That, yes, folks, that's what the martial art composed of, because he teaches it to her, and they destroy their own yes. house in the process of him teaching her this martial art. There's also one of Roger Mosley's biker sidekicks, who is called VD. VD, who actually goes around threatening to spit on people if they don't do what he says. Yeah. There's a wonderful scene, but... There is absolutely no reason for it to be in the movie other than it's this acapella group. It's what yeah. Serena and her gang are sitting in the park on their trikes. Just saying, and this acapella group just mm-hmm. walks by singing. And they stop and serenade them for a few minutes. And then they keep on going. And that's it. Then we go on to something else. Why that scene is in I have no idea. It's, as far as I know. It is literally a movie. If you watch this thing, you will not be bored for a minute. You, you, not at all. As long as you turn off whatever sense of righteousness you have, you will not be entertained for a second, because there's always something happening in this film. Guaranteed to offend somebody. Yeah. But it's very funny. And I mean, the writer, George Cosmatis, went on to write a couple of really decent films, including Miami Blues. Yeah. And didn't he go on to direct as well? Yeah, he did Miami Blues, Gross Point Blank. Yeah. 
There's a lot of talent that's in... Sorry, that's sorry, in this George Armitage. Dwayne Jesse, who played Otis Day in Animal House, who's right. his name's Shout. I like it. I think it's very funny. I think you guys ought to see it. Unfortunately, the only way you can see is if you guys are in the classic I'm movies. I'm willing to accept the fact that if you guys have been with us for a long enough period of time, your sensibilities are similar enough that I think you're going to enjoy it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. As far as I know... The only place you can see it is Turner Classic Movies. They do I'm show sure it. you could find it on the gray market somewhere. Probably, because it's out there. But try to wait until it comes to a Turner Classic Movies. Mm-hmm. And if it does, set your VCR. Do people still use VCRs? Some uh, do. My mom still uses her VCR. Okay, or your DVR. Look on the TCM Underground section. They have a schedule there of their movies. And if they're going to show it again, that's where you'll be able to find out when they're going to show it again. Oh, look at this. I'm looking up, and apparently some of the VHS copies are still available, relatively cheap. Okay, so it's available on VHS. On, on Amazon. These are obviously out of print. Since we're going through all this trouble to verify the movie is available, should tell you something about how we feel about it. Is this a DVD? It is available on DVD. Hot potato. Hot potato, hot potato. For $20, you can own this thing. Okay. I'm just looking to see if there's any... It looks like it's just a bare bones. Yeah, I love this review here. It says, somebody says, Caught this film at 2 a.m. on late night television. Couldn't believe that somebody was able to get financing to produce it. So naturally I had to get it on DVD. It's so bad, it's good. Classic 70s Velveeta. There you go. It is available on VHS, and there is a bare bones. A DVD. DVD. I don't know if... I'm pretty sure, though, it's probably out of print. Hell, if you use the Amazon Marketplace, you can get it for five bucks. Oh, well, there you go. Man, oh, Manashevitz. Of the six films we talked about, this is the one we love the most. Oh, absolutely. 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 Darntown Strutters, I could watch that. Thanks to modern day technology, I can because I burned myself a copy too. Maybe <laughs> I have my copy now, thanks to you. <laughs> so, I think, Tom, you got one more movie for no, us. No, no, we're good. We're good. We're, we're good. It's time for the administrative. But we're first, good? we should review. Yeah. Oh, wow. First, we should review. See, that's how much fun we have around here. I don't want it to stop. That's one of the reasons why we love doing the Obscure Movies episode. I could go on Obscure Movies forever. Matter of fact, when Tom walked in today, I found myself another candidate for our next Obscure mm-hmm. Movies. Oh, yeah. Well, we shan't tell them yet. What's this? Movies found online? Oh, it looks like you're able to... Because it looks like you're able to find it online. You're able to stream it in some places. Okay. In case you're wondering, there's an alternate name. It's called Get Down and Boogie. Get Down and Boogie, Yeah. Getting back to, let's review our picks for this episode. Okay. My picks were the 1968 Monkey's Oddity, who knows what it was really meant to be, called Head, the Osploitation Revenge Classic Fair Game, starring Mrs. John Denver. Okay. And 1981's sequel to Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is actually better in my opinion, Shock Treatment. And my three, in the order I took them in, 1976 Hot Potato, which starred Jim Kelly and is billed as being, even though it says it's the adventure movie to end them all, it's far from being that. It's got the reputation as being the worst martial arts Mm -hmm. movie ever made. Yes, I think it is, but it's also a lot of fun, and it's worth picking up and watching if you are a Jim Kelly fan. Mm -hmm. Then we have Black Samson, which is... From 1974, also a black exploitation film about a drug war that goes on when William Smith tries to take over a black neighborhood and sell drugs in it, but is protected by a guy who walks around with a lion and owns a bar. And from 1975, the movie that both Tom and I can recommend unabashedly, Darntown Strutters. 
the bizarre action, musical comedy, science fiction, politically incorrect romp. Those are my three. I recommend all three of them for various reasons. Yes. And if you don't like them, well, what can I tell you? I think they're great. Oh, man. Just watching terror classic movies, because I'm sure they'll show that again. As a matter of fact, I'm going to keep watching, and if I hear about when it's going to come on again, I will certainly let mm-hmm. you guys know either by here or by the Better in the Dark message board, which they can find Tom at. This brings us to the administrative. Whether you love us, whether you hate us, whether you want to tell us that shock treatment was an absolute travesty of justice against the greatness that is Rocky Horror Picture Show, there's a number of ways you can reach us. One, you can send us an email at... Better in the dark at earth2.net. That's better in the dark at earth-2.net. We have not one, but two message boards because we are such titanic personalities. We cannot be contained by one alone. You can either go to earth2.net, click on the left-hand side where it says forums, and join us on the earth2.net forums. Or go to betterinthedark.proboards.com and join the original Better in the Dark forums, which is, of course, administrated by Eric Frum, who will be joining us live in studio in May. Hopefully, yes, we're working on that right now. Eric is not too sure because, frankly, he's got a wife and he's got a daughter. And he's not too sure if he wants to leave them alone for that right at the time. Me, my solution would be that he could just bring them right. along with him because Russ Anderson. You know, He'll be I, doing that as well. Right. I told Russ, yeah, bring wife and daughter. It's no problem. But hopefully, if Eric does come, we're going to be going to see Iron Man right, together. together. We'll so we're going to do the review show. Come back and review that, yeah. And we'll be doing the first part of our much-promised two-part Star Trek episode. Yeah. So Otherwise known as Tom sits in a corner grumbling while everybody else has fun. Well, listen, get over it. But we'll keep you guys posted as far as that concerned, because we haven't exactly worked out the logistics right. of that. But when we know, you'll know. In addition to message boards, we maintain a Better in the Dark Facebook page, yeah. which was, of course, founded by our good friend Kellen Conley, which you can find on Facebook. We also have individual Facebooks. Just look for our name, and we'll, you can find us. We both have live journals, so you can follow our adventures, both related to BITD and not... Derek's is called Derek Ferguson's Notebook. And Tom's is Space Monkey Mafia. Also, out right now, through Amazon and through PulpWorksPress.com, is How the West Was Weird. Ah, yeah. Short stories of a bizarre nature set in the American West, featuring stories written by the both of us. As well as Barry Reese, creator of The Rook. Josh Reynolds. And Josh Reynolds, yeah. And a lot of good... People and that's going to be the beginning of a number of pieces of pulpwork press goodness from us because we've got another book coming out. Yeah, your anthology next year, but we'll talk about it as we get closer to that one. Oh, okay. What else do we need? But it's just something that people can keep their eye out for. Do we need to talk about anything else? They can also, if they're in a mind to, they can also pick up Dylan and the Legend of the Golden Bell. Yes. Written by yours truly, which is also available at Amazon.com and through Pulp Press. And I hear that there's going to be a short story collection, finally collecting all those Dylan stories. Yeah, that have been floating around the internet. All of them have been collected. Well, I'm almost finished writing one, and I just have to write one more. That's my project for this year, and hopefully it'll be out either later on this year or next year. Or next year. Yeah. So... That's it for this episode. This, hopefully, we're crossing our fingers that Adassi doesn't eat this one. <laughs> so this has been Thomas DJ. And this has been Derek Ferguson. 
And until next time, when a trio of African-American beautiful women on trikes come to help you take care of some weird guys who are running this town as if it's a television station, while a guy with a lion and a guy with a fellow who's eating food from under his poncho all the time are fighting against a big monster truck with a woman screaming on I was wondering how you were going to tie all that in together. I really was. Go Go see see that that movie. movie. Good night. Good night. God bless. I was really wondering how you were (laughs) going to tie that all in together. I said, he can't do it. Well, Ian, you don't trust me, huh? Uh, No, I trust you. you, Somehow you do it. Okay. It's time to say good night. Good night. Good night. One of the defining moments of Better in the Dark was episode 12. What made Haddon feel great when Tom DJ reviewed and discussed all eight of the Halloween films at the time. It was the longest episode at that moment, and also was an experience that broke him utterly. Now, in May of 2010, it's Derek's turn. (laughs) Say what now? You think you've got what it takes. This May, Derek Ferguson tackles the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. Yes, even the one with Roseanne Barr. That's right, folks. For your enjoyment, your edification, and your eternal gratitude, I am going to take the plunge, and I am going to attempt to encapsulate the entire history of Nightmare on Elm Street, the series that gave us Freddy Krueger. That knife-wielding maniac who turned from a rabid, hideous child killer into a chuckling, (laughs) sadistic (laughs) anti-hero that we all grew to love and admire. That's right, I'm going to do it. All eight Nightmare on Elm Street movies leading up to the remake that's going to be coming out with Jackie Earl Haley as the new Freddy Krueger. Better in the Dark. What made Springfield famous? Coming soon from Earth2.net and BITDsite.com. Every town has an Elm Street. Now here's my plan. Here's some more prizes. You've been listening to Better in the Dark featuring Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box, Dan and Ben of Mondo Movie, RD and Blade of WrestleCrap, Eric Frome, and of course, the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark once had a pet lion, but you try finding a litter box that size. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at earth2.net. That's betterinthedark at earth-2.net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and hey, why not leave us a review on iTunes. Maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at bitdsite.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that you'll have more fun driving around the outback by letting the girl ride in the passenger seat and not outside lashed to the grill. Everything used to be okay, but I've been had Brad, I'm glad to say, is on his way. Same thing goes for Christmas.